and like I've said to people, Nick's probably caught more black mambas than you've had hot dinners. So he's a very skilled handler, and he, he's, he's, a, he's a very skilled handler, and, and he's very knowledgeable of their behavior and stuff. Thanks for tuning in to episode two of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. wherever you're listening from. We're delighted to be joined today by Cormac Price. Cormac is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, where he's completed his PhD study in aspects of the ecology of two species of freshwater terpenes. He is a zoology graduate and completed an MSc in biodiversity and conservation. He's also a co-founder of BioWeb, a website for students, graduates, or anyone interested in the natural sciences to promote their work. Thanks for coming along and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day from KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. <laughs> happy St. Patrick's Day. So I was just going to say, first of all, yeah, where are you joining us from and how have things been over there for the past year or so? So I'm joining from the, my office on campus. It's a town called Peter Maritzburg in KwaZulu-Natal. It's, it's the capital of the province, but it's definitely not as famous as it's far larger city on the coast, which most people are familiar with, called Durban. One of the two new variants actually originated down here in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape. Oh, yeah. So that's a kind of badge of honor South Africa didn't want um, having our own having our own COVID variant. But otherwise, uh, the country seems to be coping quite well with it. In fact, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to what you're doing over there and what you're researching. But before we get into that, can you just tell us a wee bit about what your journey into conservation was and am I right in saying it kind of runs in the family? Yeah the the apple didn't really fall far from the tree so to speak I was I was very lucky and privileged with my um, my parents and my upbringing so my my father was the founder of the Irish Seal Sanctuary which was um, a seal rehabilitation NGO uh, based in County Dublin in Ireland. Yeah with the NGO, though, Dad ended up taking on a variety of other wildlife, not just the seals. So we badgers, otters, uh, some birds of prey. Uh, basically, our back garden was a was a mini menagerie. Um, and then a lot of this stuff may interest uh, the general conservationist, but to me, it was either because I was a bit spoilt as a child, or I, I wasn't actually too excited by the mammals. My fascination was just the frogs and the smooth newts we had in the garden pond. So most yeah. people would come to the seals and I'd be at the other side of the garden netting some newts out instead. Um, he, we did actually, I think I was nine or maybe 10, uh, very temporarily had, I think it was a few months, we had a, a tiger cub. Wow. Uh, it, was a, it was a cross, it was a, a mongrel tiger. As, as far as we were aware, it was a half Amur, half Bengal uh, mm. female cub that the circus was actually trying to illegally sell. Um, mm. and dad and some state vets confiscated it so we yeah a, a tiger cub so like I say beyond lucky and beyond privileged but she was because she was a cross she was neutered and then we found a facility for retired performing animals in, in America in California called the wildlife mm. way station and we we knew she could never be returned to the wild but we always wanted to make sure that she could spend at least part of her life in a large uh, professionally built facility with other tigers, something that we couldn't provide. So she she went to uh, 
tire in California, I guess. So yeah, the apple definitely fell far from the tree. My father's obsession is marine mammals, but my obsession is reptiles. And that is the thing that confuses people uh, why we differ so much. He likes, re he likes reptiles himself and I have nothing against marine mammals either. So similar, but the career did diverge a bit as well. <laughs> No, that sounds cool. Um, did you spend a lot of time outdoors then as a youngster, as you say, looking for all sorts of creatures? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I was nearly uh, I was nearly always down by the coast or by a pond or a flooded ditch or whatever, just trying to find frogs and newts. <clears throat> Definitely an outdoors kid. Uh, I, had, I had very little interest in uh, computer games or anything like that. Yeah, no, we were the same. Um, well, I did play a few computer games, but I, I definitely, I've got a real interest in now in encouraging kids and people to spend time outdoors. So I think my interest definitely developed from spending a lot of time outdoors as a youngster and, and exploring. It sounds like you've had quite an interesting upbringing, yeah, but as you say, you maybe it was just kind of normal for you um, to have all these different animals around. What was it like where you grew up? Was it quite a remote place or, or was it like the countryside or near town? Yeah, it was the countryside. I, I suppose now where I'm based the last five years, uh, anywhere, and I, I don't really, I wouldn't really consider anywhere in Ireland remote anymore. <laughs> but mm. we were we were about a we we're about a forty-five minute drive from the capital, so, so we were at Dublin County, uh, not Dublin City. And yeah, it was rural. It was um, it was it was a farming community. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that would add to it as well. So I was one of the questions I was going to ask was when did your love of herpetology develop? Um, and can you explain to anyone listening who might not know what that entails, what herpetology is? Yeah, so herpetology, I think I probably should know this, I, it, but it stems from the Greek, which is anything that crawls on its belly. And that will be your reptiles and your amphibians. Uh, so it's, it's a focus on anything within reptiles and amphibians. So it could be their anatomy, their taxonomy, their ecology, their reproductive behavior. So it's, it's, a, it's a very big net. I don't know, to be quite frank, where my uh, fascination with it came. I think in part, it was just looking at photographs of snakes and books and also the, the frogs and newts in my garden. And they were just so different to uh, the big fuzzy stuff that is more common and associated with Ireland. So yeah, they were just, they were exotic and they were different. I think the, the first time I handled a snake was, uh, I must have been about uh, 11, yeah, 10 or 11, and it was a juvenile Burmese python. And that was, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was the mind blowing experience that it's like, I'm not sure how uh, I'll figure this out, but I do want to base a career on working with these guys, yeah. Now, they're one of these species that um, people don't necessarily like very much stereotypically, but I've worked, I've been lucky enough to work with snakes in the wild and in captivity. And yeah, I think they're pretty cool. I'm no expert, definitely like you, but um, but they, I love reptiles in particular. Whereabouts in the wild were you working with the snakes? Um, I, I got to spend a few months in Mauritius working with Durrell wow. and the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, yeah. Wow. And I got to work on Round Island um, off the north wow. of Mauritius, so with Round Island Boa. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a great deal of experience, but a pretty unique one. That's and then a very unique one. Yeah, I'm quite jealous of that one myself, personally. Oh, <laughs> well, I was lucky then. That's the kind of one experience I've had. And then I've worked in different kind of educational roles in captivity, obviously, with, with different reptiles and things. Um, 
I personally find that kids are always completely fascinated with them and not scared. It's always the adults who maybe yeah. have learned that fear. You know, um, I see it as a challenge though, because well, we'll get onto that. There obviously are some species you've got to be careful around, but the general species that we have here in Scotland in a in a zoological collection, you don't have to worry about too much. That no, that sounds really cool. So that leads on to then. Um, do you want to tell us a wee bit about? Well, you could tell us about your PhD and your current research, um, and how you ended up over there. Uh, yeah, well, how I ended up here is actually it's well before the PhD. It's kind of it's a bit of a longer story. So. I did, I did a master's in Trinity in, in Dublin called Biodiversity and Conservation. And part of that master's was actually a month in South Africa in uh, the Limpopo province, comparing the management between two different kinds of reserves. And that was my, my first taste of South Africa was actually all the way back in 2012. And I loved the country. It was, it, it, every, everything about that month was interesting and fascinating. The heat, the landscape, the plants, the animals, the smells, the food, everything, everything just, I was pretty much in approval of everything I experienced that month. And then, but leave, that was all the way back in 2012, as I say, and leaving that month, I, I left extremely happy, but had no real plans or intentions of ever returning back to South Africa. Um, didn't, didn't think that would happen. And then um, I did a, a year in Nepal. Uh, so I worked for a uh, a UK, uh, I worked for a UK ecotourism company uh, called uh, Projects Abroad, and they had a they had a field site in in the Himalaya, just a few hours away from the second largest city there, Bukhara. And they had a guy they had a guy doing mammals and they had a guy doing birds, but they didn't have a guy doing uh, reptiles and amphibians. So I, I worked there for a year, um, and that was again mind blowing. I, I was very lucky to have worked there. Coming to the end of my time there, about two months before, I started using that website LinkedIn quite aggressively, <laughs> annoying people <laughs> basically. I actually think it was LinkedIn is how you contacted me about this podcast. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, basically it was two months before their contract expired. I was I was blitzing anyone on my LinkedIn that had any work with reptiles going. I'm, I'm coming to the end of a contract. Um, is there anything available? And I messaged a guy called Hans Bota down here who worked on ecotoxicology of crocodiles. So that's examining the blood for concentrations of toxins, chemicals, heavy metals of uh, crocodiles that live in the, the wetlands and water here. And I, I messaged Hans and I was like, do you need any assistance or um, an employee at the moment? And he said he didn't, but that a friend of his is a a senior professor at University of KwaZulu-Natal called Professor Colleen Downs and she's always keen to hear from postgraduate students about doing herpetology research. So I emailed Prof Colleen Downs who's my boss uh, down here and uh, no one can ask for a better boss just in case she decides to tune in at some point <laughs> but, but that's that is the, the honest truth of it and yeah um, 2015 back in Dublin in Ireland me and Prof started working on a proposal back and forth via email uh, to do terrapin research and uh, we, we finally got the nuts and bolts of the proposal done well enough that we submitted it for approval and, and it got a, so I moved here I moved here January 2016 to work on the terrapins and my first love as a kid was snakes 
but I, but all reptiles fascinate me. Um, so yeah, the PhD was on the terrapins, and uh, we found out some very interesting things in the province. We did find because there was a very bad drought from about 2014 to 2016 that there was a size class bias that the majority of animals I was collecting around the province were large, old, mature individuals, and I was getting very few juveniles. Juveniles and subadults um, for the boat species, one species, which is called the serrated hinge terrapin, was only 11% of the animals that I'd found were juvenile. And even worse again, uh, for the marsh terrapin, only 7.8% were juvenile. And terrapins are slow moving and long lived animals. So they actually work really well as, you know, as the phrase, the canary, uh, canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. So they're a, good, they're a good indicator species because they can't travel far. They live for a long time. So basically, uh, if you look at how a terrapin's getting on in a wetland, it, it kind of can help indicate to you how well that wetland is getting on in general. Yeah. Yeah. So having that, having that low number of juveniles uh, was concerning during the drought. Things have improved. The, the rains came back about 2017, 2018, and we are seeing uh, a lot more juveniles and subadults again, thankfully. But, uh, but yeah, snakes were always the fascination. Um, and what we're looking at now with the postdoc work is uh, urban snakes in Durban, which I think is the most fascinating story out there in zoology at the moment. So Durban is a city on the coast here uh, on the Indian Ocean of about 4 million people. It's, it's the population of the city is only a little smaller than the population of my whole country. It's a ginormous mega city yeah. that sprawls. But resident in Durban is the second longest venomous snake in the world, the black mamba. And as another species that can actually spit its venom has evolved, which is the Mozambique spitting cobra. And both these species uh, in a city of 4 million people seem to be doing quite well. They, they seem to be urban adapters. They seem to be living in an urban environment pretty successfully. Um, how a city of four million people can coexist and live alongside um, probably the most feared snake in Africa is is like yeah to me that is the most interesting question. Um, so I got in contact with a guy who runs his NGO, a guy called uh, my good friend and work colleague Nick Evans, and Nick Evans is a self-taught herpetologist down here, whose grandfather was actually Scottish. Oh, nice. um, yeah, so Nick's. Um, Nick's probably the, the, the best black mamba handler there is and his NGO is uh, dangerous snake removal from people's homes, people's um. places of work, that sort of thing. So Nick will remove a mamba or a spitter from a potential conflict situation and release it in a kind of green belt area. There is hardly any fatalities, uh, human fatalities in Durban from black mamba and Mozambique spitting the, the vast majority of fatalities from these snakes are from further north in Africa and in much more rural areas, which have a much smaller human population. So I actually think the snakes have changed their behavior and adapted their behavior to live in an urban environment and to avoid people. Mm -hmm. And the geography of Durban also helps a lot too, because there's a lot of deep ravines and gorges and streams uh, in and around Durban. And, and if any of your listeners want to look at Durban on Google Earth, you'll see the city's kind of built on the plateaus between these gorges um, and between these ravines. And you can't actually, they're so steep, you can't actually construct down. So we have a lot of this uh, 
um, forested and wild, almost like green veins at, at the back of the city. And we believe these are where the snakes hide out and where the snakes uh, thrive. We believe the snakes will hide out there during the day and they may come to the edges of the city where, where the city meets the, the gorge of the ravine to uh, predate on pets. So cats, rabbits, uh, dogs. And, so that they do get them, they do get themselves in a lot of, they get themselves into a lot of trouble with domestic animals, uh, but not so much people, as I say. Um, but we're recording all of this at the moment, but it's it's early days and we're in the data collection process. But um, the, the, the longer we collect the data, I'm just hoping the more we can understand and see a trend. Yeah. In an ideal situation, in a dream situation, we are looking to use uh, telemetry on some individuals. Mm -hmm. But telemetry is a lot harder than some people might think. The way nature documentaries, I think, present tele telemetry, it just makes it sound too simple. You basically you whack a tag on an animal, send it out, and you wait eight months and all this beautiful data comes flooding into it. It doesn't work like that, yeah. um, particularly for small animals. It might work like that. It might, it might work like that for big mammals like elephants, rhinos, but for very small animals, for animals that spend a lot of time underground or for semi-aquatic animals, telemetry can be a nightmare. There's a lot of obstacles to face to get a telemetry system to work correctly. No, definitely, as you see, the smaller animals in particular, I can imagine. God, it's, yeah. it's, it's a nightmare. So we did actually have tags back to the PhD work. We had, we had tags on terrapins at two different field sites. We had uh, 10 tags on each species, so 20 tags total. Almost within a week, uh, two of both had failed. So we were, we were down to 16. Mm. And then we wanted the tags to last a year. Um, the best I think we got was eight months and the worst I think we got was four days. <laughs> yes. So it's, 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 it's a big range, but that, but it was, it was novel and it was the first time either of these species had uh, transmitters attached. So the data was still very, very uh, valuable. It was still very novel data, but um, to let, like I say, the dream would be to get some tags on city mambas, but, um, but it's a work in progress. <laughs> Yeah, you might get there, you might get there. Um, what's the, I imagine, I mean, what's the general attitude? You can't speak for everybody, but what's the general attitude towards the, the species in Durban? You know, are people, will people try and kill them if they yeah. get a chance? Or will they tend to phone people like your friend Nick and, and remove them? So, so Nick is uh, very well, well known in the local media, which is a great help. And he, he also actually does a podcast with a radio station down here called East Coast FM. And because Nick is so well known, also so well respected by the local community, it, it is becoming a lot more common for people to call snake removers. But I would, I would say five, maybe 10 years ago, the more common reaction would be to try and kill it. And people need to understand, and Nick does a great um, role at explaining it, if you, it's, it's such a long and such a fast snake. If, if, if you attempt to kill it and you, you don't know what you're doing, it, the chances are it's going to be negative for both. It, it, you'll, you'll get bitten in the process. Yeah. Um, so the snake dies and the snake dies and you're hospitalized and potentially dies. So the worst possible thing you can do is probably confront <clears throat> a black mamba to try and kill it because there's, there is no positive outcome in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there is no yeah. positive. So, uh, and I think a lot of the citizens in Durban are are, are, um, 
realize that they're they're known to that so like because because nick's ran off his feet he's constantly driving around um from call out to call out so uh, people are definitely not shy of calling people to remove snakes and that is encouraging and um, but then there are other people that will uh kill them when they see them um, mm. but, but like i say that's that's getting smaller and i imagine he's got to wear all sorts of has he got to wear protective kind of equipment and things to to catch them it can't be an easy well, thing got to, i guess he's done it a million times though yeah, like I've said to people, Nick's probably caught more black mambas than you've had hot dinners. So he's a very skilled handler, and he really, he's he's a, he's a very skilled handler, and and he's very knowledgeable of their behaviour and stuff. But he always takes precautions, never free handles. So no. and and with the spit and with the spitters, of course, you need to wear a visor or goggles because uh, the first thing they aim for is your eyes. Yeah. Uh, but but he relies he relies mostly on his on his um, hook and his snake tongs. So. The hook mm -hmm. and the snake tongs are invaluable pieces of equipment. And then as soon as the snake is secured in a in a fastened bucket, um, that's it. It's no touchy. There's there is no there is no hands-on unless the snake is securely restrained, basically. Yeah. Snake needs to be restrained at all times. Yeah. Um and are these species are they particularly endangered at the moment or are they is the No, that's the problem. The both both species, as far as I'm aware, on the IUCN red list are considered least concern. And and they are thriving in the city and they do they they thrive because they're they're very adaptable. They're generalists that can basically get on in practically all the habitats except high mountain uh, in this province. So they, they get on in uh, the majority of habitats in KZN and up up further north in Africa, East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique. Mm. They, they can kind of get on in nearly every habitat that's available. So they are generalists. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, not endangered, but but very little is known about them because they, they are a high up predator. Mm. Um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a restricted area, the numbers would just naturally be low anyway, just like you'd assume you're going to find fewer than you're going to find in Pala type situations. So, so the numbers, well, the numbers are naturally low because they are a high predator. But as mm -hmm. I say, yeah, least concern, but so little's known about them because they are so dangerous to work with. Yeah. So they're they're both considered least concern, but we actually know very little about them. Most of what we know is actually most of the work done is on the anti-venom and the biochemistry of the venom. So it's it's captive individuals that are milked for their venom. And so most, if you if you Google scholar black mamba or Mozambique spit and cobra, the majority of the literature you'll find is actually on the very complicated chemistry, which I'm not very familiar with, uh, but the very complicated chemistry of the venom and how the venom uh, reacts with proteins and different developments of anti-venom. That that's all that's all the literature there is. And not as, as I say, very little. There is some, but, but very little on the behavior, the ecology, uh, and other aspects for the species. Mm -hmm. So where we're coming from, with our point of view, yes, of course, we encourage research on anti-venom. Yes, of course, of course, we encourage research on the venoms. Um, the, the, those two facets are highly important, but they're not our avenue. Our, our avenue is prevention uh, rather than cure. Yeah. So the more we learn, the more we learn about them, the the less likely it is that you're going to get bitten by one. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the more we learn about them, and the more we 
explain our results to people and teach people what we've learned, uh, the chances of getting bitten can be reduced. So we're, our standpoint is prevention rather than cure. Yeah, and I mean, just obviously, just because they happen to be obviously dangerous to, to us if they bite us, but I feel like they they still deserve, we still deserve to know loads about their behaviour and about them as a species. And as you say, it's good that you guys are maybe doing different studies, um, not just about the venom side that is very, very important. I, I um, just, it's interesting to know more about their behaviour. Yeah, I, I just like them because they, they excite me. If they, if they, if, if they were non-venomous, it, it wouldn't uh, stop me being fascinated by them anyway, because they're, they're, they're a big snake, both species are. Um, and how they, like I say, how they manage to coexist in a city of 4 million people is, is astounding, really. Yeah. So I was going to ask, I mean, in, in terms of the people might have a bit of a negative attitude towards them, but surely they play an important role in, in you know, pest control and, and things like that in the city, I imagine. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the pest control, uh, for sure. The, the majority of rats and mice in uh, Durban are going to be terrified of mambas and spitters, and, and they will. They will. The, the slight problem with the mambas is, though, they are big enough to take uh, a small cat, which oh. I some of your listeners might get angry at me here, but I, I personally don't actually mind when I hear a mamba's taking a cat because there's so much nice endemic mm-hmm. wildlife in people's gardens in Durban. So there's uh, chameleons, uh, several different species of frog, and all the feral cats are destroying and predating on Durban's smaller, beautiful garden wildlife. So when a mamba eats a cat, I just kind of see it as sort of payback. Um, <laughs> it's not that I hate it's not it's not that I hate cats that my 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 thing my gripe is irresponsible owners so um owners who don't have a bell on a cat owners who don't keep a cat in at night owners so it's it's the feral cats and irresponsible cat owners that I have a problem with yeah no I I I I totally I get it as you say some people listening might in Britain in particular we tend to think of cats as you know cute fluffy little pets but I mean I remember my first experience I mean I like cats I like all animals but when I went to Mauritius for the first time I remember the first week because Mauritius is such a unique and remote place introduced cats and dogs have have, you know decimated it and, and rats and caused so many problems so they're very much obviously seen as a very negative thing there in regards to the wildlife and it's the same obviously places like New Zealand and all over um but it is just as you say about well it's humans that brought them there so it's humans responsibility to kind well, of exactly. manage them as they can I don't I don't blame the cat for acting like a cat just like I no. wouldn't blame a black mamba for acting like a black mamba I I, I blame irresponsible owners. If you're a responsible owner, that's great. And if you're a responsible owner, your cat is probably not eating chameleons or not eating frogs and that and not eating birds. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're an irresponsible owner, that cat is doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, I can't blame a cat for being a cat. Just like I, I won't blame a mamba for being a mamba. <laughs> No, getting a big snack. Um, but I imagine with things like species like rats and stuff that also spread, you know, diseases and things, it's probably it's probably yeah. a very good thing to the population, the human population anyway. That um there are species- the majority of mamba diet in Durban is probably rat. Again, it's something we should we are looking at. Um, but the, the majority of their diet would be rat. We have also the little uh, rock hyrexes. I don't know if your listeners will be, or we call them dassies. They're yeah. kind of like a guinea pig type thing. And um, they'll take those as well. 
Um, so it'd be rats and dassies would be the majority of their diet. Um, the, the spitters, actually, the Mozambique spitting cobras, though, they'll predate quite a lot on uh, the most common toad. So the gutturals toad, it's a big, large toad. Mm. Um, so the, the spitters will eat toads, but they won't uh, reject a rat or a mouse eater. So again, good pest control. Yeah. And they're not the only they're not the only snakes in the city doing the pest control. So the, the, these are our two focus species. But we've also got um, spotted bush snakes, brown house snakes, red lipped herals. They'd be other three very common snakes in Durban. Uh, less common would be boomslang. Uh, less common again, but a very very beautiful snake and and a snake that's in a lot of trouble with habitat destruction is the green mamba. So we do get, uh, Nick Nick does get calls for green mamba and the green mamba, unlike the black mamba, is not an urban exploiter at all. The, the, the green mamba has definitely suffered a lot from land use change and urbanization. Um, so their speciality is coastal forest. And a lot of that coastal forest has been converted to sugarcane for agriculture. The green mamba is not an urban exploiter, unlike its cousin, the black mamba. Um, but yeah, there's many, many snakes in the city and all of the snakes will contribute to pest control. It sounds like the black mamba and stuff are, are they're really adaptable to, um, to yeah. where they're where So they're adaptable. In. They're such a generalist. Um, very mm -hmm. adaptable. That's cool. I, I was laughing, listening to you thinking that, I mean, in a very general way, people I know that aren't in, involved in conservation, they tend to think that, you know, when you go and do conservation work, you're in like beautiful rainforests or paradise <laughs> or, you know, like in David Atta documentaries, yeah. but you're proving that it's maybe not quite so glamorous as that. It's it's in a gi giant city. Well, in a weird way, um, I actually... Yeah, no, in, in a weird way, I, 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 I personally find it glamorous. Maybe other people don't. I know what when people who haven't visited South Africa, they, they just, the first thing they think is the big five and Kruger. And for, for my PhD, uh, I did get a taste of all of that. Um, so my field mm -hmm. sites were up on the Mozambique border. And uh, so in Dumo Game Reserve has the highest density Nile crocodile and hippo population per square kilometer than anywhere in Southern Africa. So I did, I did get a taste of all of that for the first four years of the PhD, but not to sound pessimistic or anything, but fenced off reserves, it's not that they're a dying breed, and I think they're great, the fenced off, but they, they're not giving you an indication of what's really happening on the other side of the fence. Um, so mm -hmm. another thing is uh, the urban wildlife, but not just urban, so mosaic of land. So the nice thing about Durban, as I say, is these deep ravines and stuff. You, th there's, there's little conservancies around Durban. And, and we have these two organizations in Durban, one's called DRAP, the Durban Research Action Partnership. The other's called DMOS, which is the Durban Metropolitan Open Space System. And both of these have worked really well with small little conservancies around the city, places like Kranzkloof, Virginia Bush, these names won't mean anything to people who haven't been to Durban. But basically, Kranzkloof is one of my favorite ones. And it's, it's such a deep gorge. And, at the top of the gorge, you know you're in a city of 4 million people. That's quite clear. But at the bottom, you're just surrounded by dense native vegetation. There's vervet monkeys jumping overhead. There's probably over 70 species of bird. I'm useless at birds. Um, there's mambas. There's uh, spitting cobras. At, at the bottom of that gorge, you would think you're in, you know, 
typical Africa, stereotypical Africa, but you get to the top of that gorge and, you know, you're surrounded by malls and traffic and, and that mosaic, that, that mosaic pattern, I think it's going to be the future. It like urban wildlife as a research topic has obviously already taken off in Europe and North America, the developed places, but researchers in Africa looking at urban wildlife are really ahead of their time because all zoologists and researchers from abroad, <laughs> if they want to work in Africa, they want to work in the big Maasai Mara or Kruger or places like that. People are looking at urban wildlife in Africa and are, are, are pioneering in a way, uh, just like the people who were in Europe and America in say the 60s and 70s. And we have a very young human population in, in Africa. And as far as I'm aware, the, the African continent is the fastest growing uh, human population of all the continents. So we've had, and all these people are going to require somewhere to live and urban sprawl is going to affect Africa like it did in Europe and like it did in America previously. There is very in cool photos I see of that. I'm not sure the name, I've never been up there. I haven't been lucky enough to visit yet. But there's a big five reserve quite near Nairobi in Kenya. And again, Nairobi is this huge, urban, sprawling Goliath city. And people will see there's photos of giraffes and white rhino grazing and in the background, skyscrapers. And, yeah. and that, that could be the future direction, you know? Um, I think and it doesn't, have to be all, it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom too. People, some people, if they look at that photo, their immediate reaction would be sad or upset. But I, I think I think look at the photo a little longer and think, well, no, it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. There can be coexistence and and hats off to urban exploiting species, I think. I'm, I'm because I, I'm pretty convinced the reason mambas and spitters are doing so well in Durban is based on both those species intelligence. It's it's definitely not based on people. So I have a big admiration and respect for animals that can get on in an urban environment. Yeah, they're adapting to yeah what they're having to. No, I agree. I think as you say, the images with say the scenery and then the skyscrapers in the background, quite often people say in Britain, you know, they'll maybe watch certain documentaries and things and they think it all looks like that and it's all paradise and it's all still pristine. And I think it's important that people do realise the impact, the huge impact and, you know, that humans are having and actually see it because that's the reality and it's only going to get worse because their population is going yeah. to grow as you say it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just the reality of what we're dealing with and therefore you know how where can we go from here africa um, africa can learn from europe and america's mistakes i believe um and and develop our own unique attitude here in africa to to urban wildlife because i i, I don't want to be overly controversial right now or overly critical um it, it's it's quite a neo-colonialism attitude of of some europeans or some americans to think that africa must remain this pristine like kruger maasai maras or everybody in africa is entitled to the same standard of living as everybody in europe and the population is growing and we just need to figure out and balance that we want an uh, we want an increase in our living standards, but we also want to protect our wildlife. And the two don't have to be separated. You, we can work on increasing people's standards of living and uh, and preserve our wildlife. The two don't have to be separate. Yeah, you have to, I mean, you have to work together and, and make it work. Yeah. yeah. I've spoken to a lot of people 
throughout the last few years who are trying really hard to get into conservation. Um, it's obviously a competitive field, and I think over here anyway, after now because of COVID as well, there probably are less jobs um, than ever before. But what advice would you give to someone who's trying to get into the conservation industry? Uh, networking, hey, eh? uh, definitely networking. Like, like I said earlier in our in our chat, um, I I managed to get my position here and my previous position in Nepal by uh, that website LinkedIn, and never 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 think that there's no such thing as a dumb question basically and and never be scared to ask a question never be scared to approach someone you believe is far more senior or in a higher authority position uh, because generally nine times out of ten they're compliment they, they feel complimented they've been contacted um and if they can't help you immediately they will they will do their best to give you advice or point you in the right direction so never have this anxiety issue that, uh, you know, oh, they'll think I'm stupid or oh, they'll think I'm underqualified. So networking, networking and uh, not being afraid to ask questions is so important. Yeah. Volunteering is uh, pretty important, too. So, yeah, volunteering in, in local wildlife NGOs, uh, building up your field experience with, with voluntary organizations is very important as well. I started off totally voluntary. I did, I did a year um, on some frog surveys in Ireland with the Irish Wildlife Trust voluntary. I, I, I was a volunteer with that group Operation Wallacea. Um, yeah, I've, I've, done, I've done my fair shit. I've done my fair stint of voluntary, uh, I believe. Don't expect to be a millionaire in conservation. It's not that glamorous. <laughs> the only two people I know that managed to make it big financially are uh, Steve Irwin, rest in peace, and Sir David Attenborough. So um, if you're looking for, yeah, if you're looking for making millions, no, that probably won't work out. But everyone who's passionate with zoology uh, should should expect to, you know, uh, and are entitled to uh, a living wage. I agree with that. So I'm very pro doing your stint in voluntary, particularly for young people to get your experience. But once you've got your experience, everyone's entitled to a living wage in conservation. I totally agree with that. Yeah, don't basically don't be afraid to ask questions and network and and pick a niche that seriously you're interested in. Could be anything. Could be slugs. Could be plant insect interactions. Uh, yeah, could be crustaceans. Pick something that you're really passionate about and don't be afraid to speak to the experts and they'll they'll point you in the right direction basically. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I know my own experience, I've had a bit of a random roundabout route into the roles I've been in, but it's definitely helped. I've had voluntary experience and I've had unusual, I've kind of had a variety. I've stood out from the crowd a wee bit, maybe um, when they've been looking at CVs. But yeah, I'm not backwards at coming forwards, as my dad says. So you've just got to get out there and, and talk to people um, when you get the opportunity. And speaking of which, do you want to tell us a wee bit more about BioWeb, um, your website? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, bioweb.ie. I've actually been so swamped. But my position with that website is to try and find uh, contributors to, to write pieces for us. Um, again, mainly through LinkedIn. But I work with two friends back in Dublin with it, uh, Carl and Garth. And it, it was, it was kind of Carl's brainchild, I suppose, back in, I think it must have been 2014. But, yeah, it's a science communication website that anyone with a, with a, with work, we we felt particularly for bachelor's theses, not so much masters and PhDs, but people who've done a bachelor's degree, and they've written up their thesis, and 
they were very proud of that and it, they, they worked really hard on that and there was you know valuable findings unfortunately a lot of bachelor's theses don't make it into the peer review process but that shouldn't stop either people sharing it um in a non-peer review process way through, through science communication um so i think our our frustration was every university around the world has these really cool interesting environmental and zoology theses, uh, bachelor's ones, just sitting on shelves, gaining dust. Why don't we contact students and go, why don't you share with us your findings and your, your results from your, from your thesis, uh, get it out there to a wider audience. But, so that was, that was the initial idea. But now, so long as it's, it's a well-researched uh, opinion piece, uh, we're, we're happy to take opinion pieces. We've had book reviews before. So, so once it's the, it's not an overly negative opinion piece or again nothing we try and avoid as best we can fake news and trolling as i say um but yeah opinion pieces book reviews uh, an honors thesis that never made it to peer review uh, all sorts basically uh, amateur naturalists uh yeah people who work in the ngo sector environmental ngo sectors uh, anyone is well willing anyone who's willing to approach us with an idea for an article is more developed that sounds awesome. And finally, how can listeners learn more or support your work? Um, I'll obviously share all the various social medias and things when I post the podcast. But how could you learn more? All of the, all of the social media links are um, a good way of following Nick's work uh, in Durban. Uh, particularly his, his YouTube channel is, is very good. Uh, and his Facebook page, KZN Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. To follow when I get out a bit of work. I'm I'm on I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Twitter. I think my handle is at C Mr. Price. Uh, for Bioweb, it's yeah, the website is bioweb.ie. If you're thinking about being a contributor, uh, just go to the tab, the page that's called Write for Bioweb. So uh, bioweb.ie and uh, yeah, myself on Twitter. A anyone who wants to talk further about specifically herpetology research. It can contact me on my work email as well, which I think yeah. you, I, I gave you, which is priceco at tcd.ie. I am very tight on funding at the moment. <laughs> very, very tight. So I'm, I'm, what I'm not doing is just offering positions that because I'm basically trying to figure out my own position at the moment. So, but if, but if people want to contact about work in KZN, I'm more than happy to to speak with them basically in short yeah yeah awesome no, that sounds good now i'll share all the relevant um twitter and instagram and, and emails and stuff um on the podcast as I it's speak. all there in the links yeah. yeah yeah it's all there in the links now we we unfortunately have run out of time i'm sure we could keep blethering for ages about all these things but um thank you so much cormac for coming on it's been great to chat to you pleasure oh no thanks for having me and happy st patrick's day yeah happy patty's day <laughs> have fun Thank you.